And uh, I'm going to ask you in a couple of minutes to turn to page 5 in your booklets, but uh, I want to begin with looking at a couple of passages from Scripture. Uh, I have said before, and I want to emphasize and repeat as often as necessary, that we go to God and we go to His Word to find direction, to find meaning and purpose for our lives. And just a couple of places in Scripture where I think we can get some insights that deal with these goals or objectives we have. I would like to first of all have you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one of those passages that has often been used in defense of and promotion of the Christian school movement. And uh, I just want to read the first six verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And it goes on and tells us to impress them on their children, etc. Another passage that has been meaningful to me over the years is found in Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And I would like to read there the first eight verses. <coughs> o oh, my people... Hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from of old, things we have heard and known, things our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. I could also turn your attention to the book of Proverbs, for there are many things there, but we read some of those the other day. So let me once again direct your minds to Romans 12. And just call attention to some of those 
ideas and themes that come there as Paul applies the gospel to our daily lives. I'll start at verse 2 and read through verse 8. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And lastly, I would have you turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I choose this passage particularly because Paul is talking here to the people from the church at Philippi about pressing on toward the goal. Notice what he says there beginning at verse 12. And I want to read from there to the end of the chapter. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That idea of transformation comes out once again loud and clear. Now that we've 
looked at scripture, let's go to the state of Illinois <laughs> and see what's, what they say about goals and objectives. I read from a document entitled Illinois Goals, World Class Education for the 21st Century. And uh, they say here, goal number one, each Illinois public school student will exhibit mastery of the learner outcomes defined in the state goals for learning, demonstrate the ability to solve problems and perform tasks requiring higher order thinking skills, and be prepared to succeed in our diverse society and the global workforce. Sounds quite different. Number two, all people of Illinois will be literate, lifelong learners who are knowledgeable about the rights and responsibilities of citizenship and able to contribute to the social and economic well-being of our diverse global society. All Illinois public school students, number three. Number four, all Illinois public school students will have access to Number five, all Illinois public school students will attend schools. Number six, all Illinois public... Do they ever have any time for Christian schools? Nope. The goal is to get everybody into public schools. To get everybody into the established state church of Illinois, which is the public school. That is the only one that is permitted to set goals and objectives and to train children. When we talk about goals and objectives, one of the things you have to recognize right up front is that there's a tremendous competition going on. The public school is saying, we have a set of goals, we have objectives that we want to achieve and they do not and will not include biblical goals or objectives. We have no place, no time for that. I used to be very much involved in the Illinois politics and uh, in some of the work at the state level. And uh, many of these people were very emphatic. They would do everything possible everything conceivable to prevent the Christian schools from getting one dime of money because they had absolutely no right to be educating at all. Education is the sole responsibility of the state and they had the goals. Yes, you had a question. Well, in the uh, first two points there anyway, they mentioned the word diverse or diversity and I know as an employee of the city of San Diego we went through uh, diversity training and it all you know boiled down to uh, the whole uh, socialist if you will uh, you know agenda of every treating everybody uh, with uh, with respect regardless of what their behavior might be and uh, it was all couched out to the homosexual community at least in San Diego that was the that was the crux of it and everything you were supposed to be uh, uh, amenable, you know, you, every, everything was allowed except the Christian position. I mean, it was it was very clear, uh, just like you were saying there in Illinois, it was it was everything but the uh, the Christian position. You were you were supposed to uh, be uh, tolerant of. 
Toleration is the greatest virtue. <laughs> the greatest virtue. Just ask most of the people. Except do not be tolerant of those who are intolerant. Which, wait a minute. And, and do not be tolerant of radical fundamentalist Christians. By all means, do not be tolerant of them. But be tolerant, folks, of the homosexuals, of the gays, the lesbians. Oh, Yes. That's right. Right. Just to, just to reiterate what Susan is saying there, that most of the public schools will not give you credit for experience in having been taught in Christian schools and they'll simply start you over on the pay scale as though you had not taught anywhere. Uh, that is another sign of their intolerance of the Christian movement. Yes, John? I don't know the answer to that. The question is, does the state only treat those who have come out of Christian schools or do they treat those who come from private secular schools in the same fashion? I know the ladies are talking about I, I don't know, and I would not want to get sidetracked in that because I got so much stuff to pursue. But Jay, go ahead. In California, at least, it's related to membership in the NEA. Oh, okay. It's a relationship to the NEA or to the in the state of Illinois. It's the Illinois Education Association. Uh, very, very powerful lobbying force. Very powerful. But uh, that'll get us a little bit off track. Let me just say that when it comes to setting goals, in a, yes, uh, uh, Jeanette, or is it Lynette? Lynn. Okay, Lynn's question is, uh, should we construe Illinois' stated objectives in the narrow sense that I did, where they want everybody into the public school, or should we simply give them some more credit and some more, uh, some more tolerance toward them and simply say that, well, they want every child in the state to have these basic skills and basic learning. And I think there are times when you say, yes, we share goals with the public school, 
there are times when you will say, yes, we share that same outcome. We hope that our children will all become good readers. That is going to be accepted by the public schools and it's going to be accepted by Christian schools. But there are some differences that I hope you see in the next hour. And I want to have us move forward so we get into a worksheet this morning where we'll take a look at some of that. But I need to lay some groundwork first. And let me just proceed with some of that groundwork. Parents almost always have some kind of goal, some kind of target that they're shooting for for their children. I know we did. When God gave us children, we had certain hopes and aspirations for these two sons and the one daughter. And that's not wrong. Every parent, hopefully, has some kinds of goals. Maybe you're saying, you know, I want my child to be the best possible gymnast in this country so that in 2006 or whenever that next Olympic is going to be, it's too late to get them trained for, for Atlanta. It's coming up too fast. But down the road... I want my child to be the best possible gymnast so she will take the gold medal at the Olympics in Chicago in 2006. You may have that as a goal. And you may you know, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and bring your child to gymnast class to get that and push that child. And sometimes I see that with parents in football. They get their little boys in football and they're going to pad them up and they're going to get them in, what do you call it, uh, some kind of Pop Warner, Pop Warner around here. Right. Uh, and you're going to toughen those kids up and you're going to have them learn how to run and catch a pass and kick and, and all of that stuff. And you have goals. You want them to play for USC someday and just be so great that they wipe out the image of OJ. I knew you would relate to that. <laughs> or you have other kinds of... My father and mother wanted me to become a minister of the gospel. And they encouraged that. My father died before I ever got to that point. My mother still delights. And she needs to see the bulletin every Sunday to see what her son is preaching on. So every Monday morning we send mom a bulletin and she knows what I preached on in the morning and the evening. And my father in heaven, I'm sure, is just smiling from ear to ear because that was what they wanted for me. It just took me 40 years to get there. I was a slow learner. <laughs> but we all have aspirations. When our children come to us, we want them to learn certain things. And you... You can't wait until they have learned to walk. That's a goal. I want Billy or Jennifer, whatever child's name, I want Jennifer to learn to be able to walk and so she can walk and run and pretty soon she can play soccer. And but of course, <clears throat> before you can learn to walk, you have to learn to fall on your bottom. You can't learn to walk until you've learned to fall. Did you know that? Watch little kids. If they've never learned to fall, 
they won't walk. But you want them to go beyond walking. You want them to learn to talk and to say father and mother, and you want to be able to finally get them to the point where they can have a vocabulary like Bob Needham, and you become a... <laughs> yeah, I know Bob. I love him. But we all have aspirations and goals. And when they go to school, the teachers have goals and aspirations. And sometimes the aspirations of the, the parents come into conflict with those of the teachers at school. And you have a different set of objectives. And a father may say, I want my son to learn the business of raising hay or raising corn so that he becomes one of these big suppliers for the dairies and so that he can have a big Cadillac or a Mercedes and so that he can be a millionaire by the time he's 30. Parents have those aspirations. And the teacher at school says, that's all dead wrong. Son, you need to learn arithmetic and you need to learn poetry. He says, I don't need to learn poetry to be a hay farmer. Or a parent will come and say, I want you to be just like whoever, so and so. And the child says, I don't want to be like my oldest brother. I, I had a classic case of that in my very first year of teaching. I had a very bright, capable <coughs> high school senior who insisted on flunking everything. Every test I gave him in English literature, he flunked because he was rebelling against the aspirations of his father and his mother. They wanted him to be exactly like his brother, Nick Waltersdorf. Some of you may know or have heard of Nick Waltersdorf, most eminent philosopher the CRC has produced probably in the last 50 years. And Ike, his younger brother, says, I refuse to be like that, and I'll make certain that I don't learn any English. So he deliberately flunked all my tests. Uh, we have conflicting kinds of values. We also have tons of them. We also have tons of objectives that we could legitimately set forth. Some years ago, there was a movement throughout the United States, not unlike the OBE movement now. It was, in a sense, a 20th. 20-year predecessor of that. And every school had to very carefully articulate all of their objectives for every subject in the curriculum. So for third grade arithmetic, you had to have a long list of all of the things you wanted to teach those kids during third grade class in arithmetic. And in social studies, you had a great big long list. And you could go on forever and ever. And some of the states did until they ran out of money. The state of Michigan had books, big stacks of books, just objectives and goals for children in the elementary schools. And it would take you years to read and study them to figure out what you were supposed to teach. And teachers complained because they never had time to teach. They were spending all their time figuring out what they were supposed to teach. And pretty soon the state says, forget it, we goofed, let's try a different tack. Now, there are literally hundreds and thousands of things that you and I could legitimately learn. 
we can't deal with such humongous numbers. It just blows us away. So what we have to do is figure out some way to categorize, some way to classify all of those objectives and put them in manageable compartments or segments. And let me show you on the board one of the primary categories or systems that is used. You'll find it also on the top of the objective rating sheet, which comes right after page five in your booklets. You can turn there while I quickly transcribe these to the board. This particular system has been adopted by 90, 95, 98% of American educators over the last 20 years. And they have said that there are three basic classifications or categories for learning goals or learning objectives. And the first and most prominent they call cognitive. That has to do with intellectual acquisitions, like learning to spell, or learning to divide, or learning to read rapidly, or learning to understand American history, or learning to understand how politics works. All of those kinds of things would be classified as cognitive. And then there are other kinds of learnings. We had talked earlier about Learning to be tolerant. That is so important today in our culture. We must learn to be tolerant, especially of certain classifications of people. So that's really not so much intellectual as that is a matter of the heart. Those are attitudes. And, and we want to teach kids to share with each other. That, that's a nice thing. They shouldn't fight on the playground. They shouldn't all compete for toys. They should learn to share. Now, that's not really head knowledge so much. That's more an attitude or what you might call an affective, an emotional, attitudinal kind of learning. And then there are things like learning to catch a football or learning to play piano uh, that is really, it's a muscular kind of thing. You have to make those fingers fly over the keyboard, uh, and that is what you would call now a psychomotor learning. Uh, it used to be that secretaries had to learn how to type, and we all know good and well that secretaries don't need any brains. They just need blonde hair. Excuse me. <laughs> they just need blonde hair, uh, nice looks, a nice shape, and be able to make their fingers fly on the typewriter. That's strictly a psychomotor. That's not an academic, that's not a cognitive kind of thing. And then, of course, you also need to learn how to hit a backhand spin in tennis. And that, again, is strictly a muscular kind of thing. So we're going to classify things into cognitive category and then into affective categories and lastly into psychomotor. That is, don't argue with the system. 95% of the people believe this. 
that is the way we're going to classify all of these outcomes or goals. Now, what I want you to do is go to work, <clears throat> give my voice a rest, and I want you to go through that list there. I have about 30 learning goals or objectives, and I want you to simply go through and place the letter in the blank space for each of these objectives. If you think that this is a cognitive objective, then put in a C. If you think it's affective, put in an A. If you think it is a psychomotor, put in a P. And just take a minute, I hope you have a pencil. If you don't have one, um, write an indelible finger. <laughs> or, I don't have pencils. Is that, was that your question? No. No, yes, a question. No. But that's no. Possible. Don't don't argue. <laughs> don't don't be difficult this morning. Just just follow directions. <laughs> so is Jay. <laughs> just go through a minute and put in a C, an A, or a P. Is there a presupposition we're looking for here? Maybe. I'm going to let you work for a minute, and uh, when I think you've done your homework properly, then I'll call you back to attention. Okay, hang on a minute. Uh, we have some questions we need to have. Uh, Jeff, what was your question? You can. You can wait. Okay. All right, hang on. Uh, Mr. Salani. Yes, you did. You had a question. Uh, you had a very good question a while ago. Are, are there presuppositions involved here? Yes, yes. And, and what are they? That everything falls into these categories. Well, there's, there's a... There are those presuppositions. There's another one, though, that, and I think it's no, no, no. Go back, back up a minute. Yes. There, well, there is that assumption, and they're they're making that pretty bold up front that all learning can be classified into these three categories. But there's an assumption about the nature of the person that they're separate. They are assuming something. Larry. Yeah, what? They are also assuming that there is a chief end of man which doesn't fit at all with the Christian one. There's that too. But I'm most concerned right now, Rollin, about... That the pupil is a combination of separate parts. Right. That's a good, succinct category. Rollin is saying they are assuming that the child is a collection of separate parts. That's the assumption. They do not agree at all with the point I was making last night about the organic wholeness. God has created us as one creature functioning as a unified whole. They are assuming that we have separate parts and that one part of us learns how to type, 
And I must come back and uh, correct my horrendous comments about secretaries. <laughs> that <laughs> I did not mean that. I was playing the devil's advocate. <laughs> Rest assured. Secretaries quite often are smarter than their bosses. They have to be to correct all their bosses' mistakes. <laughs> but there is a cultural kind of assumption that secretaries are dumb blondes who can only type because they have nimble fingers. That's nonsense. They must be very good spellers. They must have a good grasp of the language. They must also read the boss's mind. Oh, yes. And they have to be able, they oftentimes can tell the boss not to do something and the boss will listen to them. If he's smart. <laughs> Correct. Anyway, I did not mean to disparage secretaries. I, I'm just pointing out a, a myth that exists in our culture. I trust that, let me see the hands of those that had problems putting a C, A, or a P in these, with an only one. All of you did. Good. As I said, 95% or more of the educators in this country have bought into that baggage and it doesn't work. If you apply their own pragmatic principles to it, if it doesn't work, it isn't true, this doesn't work. It just does not work. Yes, in the back. What do I base the statement that it doesn't work on? Simply in the fact that it doesn't work. That you <laughs> that might be circular, but I'm saying that if I say to appreciate poetry, take that given one, does that involve my attitudes, my emotions? Oh, yes, it does. If I hate poetry like most junior high kids do, and most boys do, until you know, unless there are no girls around, but if I take that, there is a real attitude, there's an emotion involved in poetry. And maybe once you learn poetry, you begin to appreciate. But do you, can you ever say that it doesn't take brains? That the intellect is not involved? Of course not. Is there a physical dimension to my learning to appreciate poetry? Well, yes. My eyes are functioning. My ears are functioning. Maybe as I use a pen and write poetry, my fingers are... Of course, the point of Paul's comment in Romans 12, where I read a while ago, is that we function as a whole body, and all these parts work together as one whole. They're not separate, disjointed pieces that learn things at different times. Not at all. Our culture, though, assumes that. Now, what we have to do is to figure out some way to classify these hundreds and thousands of objectives that does make sense. And I simply want to give you an alternative. And that alternative has to do with values. Not with a broken kind of conception of man, but with the question of what is important. So what I have done over the years 
is to develop what I think is a very simple fundamental system of classifying objectives and I call it primary, secondary, tertiary, and incidental. Let me put it on the board for you. Where's my red truck? What I've simply done is to say we're going to classify those objectives that are most important as being of primary value. And we will label those simply as one. And then we're going to take those that are less valuable, less significant, less important, and we're going to classify those as secondary objectives. And we'll label those with a two. And then we'll go to those that are even less important yet, and we will call those tertiary and we will label those with a three. And then we got to go and go further down the list yet and classify those that are still less important. And now we run into a language problem. Quartiary isn't a word that... Uh, I'm in a quandary, so I'm going to simply call these things uh, incidentals. And... They are legitimate, but we're not going to structure any kind of programs. For example, uh, I would classify rollerblading as an incidental kind of thing. Oh, sorry about it. Uh, let me let me find. Uh, no, tennis, stay out of it. <laughs> Don't tamper with my tennis. Uh, tying shoes with shoestrings. That's incidental. Well. <laughs> with, with today's Velcro straps, you know, it's pretty simple. We're not going to set up an educational program in kindergarten for shoe tying. Well, wait. If, if you happen to get some primitive kids who come to school with strings in their shoes, the teacher during recess time can say, Billy, let me help you. This is incidental. We're not going to disrupt the whole class for that. But there's federal money for it. Oh. <laughs> oh, then we will make it a primary value. No, no, no. The question is, is this only in formal school? No. This applies across the board. But what we need is some kind of guidance and some kind of direction for our formal schools so that we know where we ought to spend our time. We, ought to, we don't want to spend all of our time spinning our wheels and all of our tax money teaching all the kids to rollerblade like the high school does that just a block down the street from us. I, this frosts me. I, I get my tax bill, and there's you know, thousands and thousands of dollars going towards this public high school that I must pay for. 
And then I, Wilma and I take our walk in the morning and here come 30 kids led by one of the instructors from the phys uh, ed department uh, who is teaching these kids to rollerblade. They all know it already. But they are rollerblading down the street and they go for 45 minutes and then they go to school and, and uh, they don't take showers anymore. That's passe. Uh, and then the next hour, here comes another phys ed teacher and she has 30 kids on their bicycles. And I said, you could do a lot more with my tax dollars than that. The important stuff they never get around to. All this incidental stuff they spend all my money on. So I have some you know, economic concerns here. But now, take a minute, and we'll first answer Alan's question. Given the presuppositions, though, of the public school system, maybe it's just as well that they stick to rollerblading and bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't. <laughs> maybe it's just as well that they stick to rollerblading and bicycling. Uh, those are relatively harmless kinds of things, I know. Because in that same school, at the end of each day, one of the teachers, whom I know well, asks all the girls as they exit the room, don't forget to take your pill. Don't forget to take your pill. Oh, yes, because we wouldn't want you to get pregnant. Then you'd have to go to Planned Parenthood for abortion. So take your pill, girls. Uh, you know, it's sick. And true, if they were all rollerblading all the time, they wouldn't learn that garbage. But <coughs> not in that particular one. They do other places. In other districts, they pass out the pills and the condoms and the works. Yeah. But we've got to get serious. You have another assignment to do. Now, let's forget this cognitive, affective, psychomotor. It doesn't work. It's wrong. Let's try DeYoung's simple system of one, two, three, four. Go through these 30 objectives now and give them a classification. If you think that this is one of the most important things that kids ought to learn, give it a one. If you think it's very important but not quite so important, give it a two. If you think it's still less important, give it a three. If it's really incidental, so what if they learn it, so what if they don't, give it a four. All right? Take a couple minutes. Oh, yes, there are presuppositions. We'll get to those, and I'll acknowledge them. But take a minute now and go through that worksheet and label them one, two, three, or four. All wide awake and alert. See, keep an eye open for anybody that has know, any possibility of falling asleep, give them a good elbow. It's, it's that time in the morning when, and especially somebody watch Robin. <laughs> Don't tell me secrets uh, because they'll come back to haunt you. Ah. I want to pick up where we left off before our break, deal with number two, and I want to see how uniform or how agreed we are as a body. I have used this particular instrument in a number of places. 
and have seen some very interesting patterns develop. I first developed it when I was teaching back at Dort College in the 60s, late 60s. And uh, then I used it also when I was teaching at the University of Iowa. While I was working on my doctorate there, I was teaching a course in Introduction to Education and used the same instrument. Your responses are. So let's, let's walk through some of these and see once how much agreement we have. You're going to get some exercise in raising your hand. Uh, we won't do all of these just for time constraints. We'll start with that very first one. Children need to learn to obey their parents. How many of you put that as a one? Oh, you've been cheating. <laughs> Did anybody put this as a four? Ah, <laughs> uh, get him, get him. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a long walk home, Andy. Uh, let's try the second one. Children need to learn to love their neighbor. As a one. As a two. Okay. As a three. As a four. Uh, everybody is in that one or two category. Number, uh, let's try it. Appreciate poetry. As a one. No way. <laughs> Bob, Bob Lee loves poetry. And there's another one. So we got two ones. As a two. As a three. As a four. Ah. <laughs> ah, there are some typical junior high, senior high boys back there. One of the greatest challenges of a teacher is to teach junior high boys to love poetry. That's a great challenge. Oh, let's try to drive a car. How many of you would rate that as a one? Uh, the, uh, as, a, as a two. As a three. As a four. Ah... Most of you, thankfully, don't put it up there in the ones. That doesn't belong in the ones. That's not equally important to obeying dad and mom. <laughs> yeah, well. well. Notice, you know, when you say, though, that this is a one, you're saying that this is the most important thing that we need to learn. One of those most important things. Okay, let's try a few others. Uh, to subtract correctly. How many of you would put that as a one? To subtract correctly. How many of you would put it as a number two? How many of you would put it as a number three? Right. How many of you would put it as a four? Uh, okay. We're a little bit spread out in the map on that one. Uh, and again, you have to ask yourself, is this as important as learning to obey your parents? And I, well, we're talking about values. We're talking about importance and significance. Yes, a question back there. Uh, comment. A comment. If, if math is learning to subtract is not as 
important as a one, you would have a difficult time making change and getting a job and keeping a job. No, I'm I'm recommending that you teach it. <laughs> oh, of course. I'm not suggesting at all that you don't teach twos and threes. But I'm saying, where are you going to put your priorities? Where are you going to really put your muscle and your money? That's what I'm... That's number one. Oh, yeah, that book up there. Now, I think that's the Bible, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, way in the back. is, or the comment, how do you read some of these? You can read into it a particular emphasis on learning to subtract, that would be one, or learning to subtract correctly, and you, you may come up with different kinds of responses. Keep in mind, now, what I've said earlier, that these are God's children. And God's Word is the basis on which we're building. And God's Word is the primary authority to which we go back to find direction. And what we have to do, in a sense now, is to ask, what does God want His children to learn? What does He emphasize in His Word? And God is not talking in His Word about subtracting correctly or incorrectly. He's saying, that's not important enough to be in this book. There are things, though, that I'm going to emphasize, that I want to make crystal clear to you, that you all have to learn. That's, that's where I'm driving you. Hang on, let's try a few more. Yes, Lynn. Lynn's question is, shouldn't we do everything to the honor and glory of God? Shouldn't we do our arithmetic lessons? Shouldn't we do our spelling lessons? Shouldn't we do our lessons in swimming? Whatever, to the honor and glory of God. Yes, I would say emphatically. But I'm still saying, is learning to subtract as important in God's sight as learning to obey His laws? And I think not. I think that, well, let me, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Let me just move through this 
And maybe in a couple of minutes I'll have some answers to some of your questions and you'll say, oh, now I know where he's going. Trust me. (laughs) Follow me. And if I don't get there, then after a while I'll come back with your questions. Okay, let's try a few more and just to see how much agreement we have. Uh, Let's take uh, in that second or that first column, second cluster, uh, to use the computer, how many of you today would rate that as a one? Uh, Just a couple of you. How many of you would rate that as a two? Most of you. How many of you would rate that as a three? Still some of you. How many of you would rate it as four? Incidental. Okay. (laughs) Obviously doesn't use a computer. (laughs) Now, think back for a minute. Can you project yourself backwards in time, alley-oop fashion, uh, 15 years ago? That would be in 1981. If you had to go through this exercise back in 1981, how many of you would rate learning to use a computer as high as you do today? No. Use a computer, those are for the engineering freaks. Nerds. That's, these are nerds. This is not for me. I, in fact, said that yet five years ago. I don't have to learn it. And then I lost my secretary when I changed careers, and I said, I have to learn it. This becomes high priority all of a sudden. So conditions, situations do affect our values and our choices. Let's try a couple more. <clears throat> How many of you think that to read rapidly is a number one? Rapidly. Only three of you hands in a seat. How many of you would say that's a number two? Uh, quite a number. How many of you would rate it as three? Oh, quite a number. You're spread out. How many of you would rate that as a four? To read rapidly. Okay. I'm a slow reader. I'm a very slow reader. I'm sorry. When I get done reading most stuff, it's all marked up. You can hardly find the text back. A very, very slow reader. I, I can't read a sentence without asking questions about it. So I've got to jot the question down. Let's try the next one. <clears throat> How many of you would say to read critically is a number one. Oh, oh, a lot more of you. Reading critically is more important than reading rapidly. Yes, amen, amen. <clears throat> Let's try another one. Uh, to sing in tune <laughs> as a number one. Nobody. <laughs> Right, I can't, I can't learn it. I've been trying for 50, 60 years now, and I still can't learn it. Uh, it's not important. To, uh, to swim as a one. Whether you're drowning or not. <laughs> <laughs> if you've just been dumped overboard a long way from shore, it's quite important. Uh, What? At least the two. Okay. Learning to swim is very important. It is. But it's not number one in my book. Not at all. Uh, To love the Lord as a number one. Ah, everybody, get your hands up, everybody. (laughs) 
To pray to God. Oh, there you go again. Is that part? Let's stop for a minute. Is that part of the school's job? Yes. Yeah. Is it part of a teacher's job to teach kids to pray? Yes. How many? How many colleges that train teachers? make a point of training teachers to teach kids to pray. Well, there was one a couple years ago. No, I, I tried to do it in my courses. I tried to make it part of my programs. You want to teach in a Christian school, one of the most important things that these kids need to learn is to learn to talk to their Father in Heaven. And how are they going to learn it if you don't teach them? They're going to learn by imitation. They're going to imitate probably dad and mom. And they're going to simply do the kinds of things that dad and mom do around the dinner table. Uh, and that may or may not be a good model. I, I know one home where the father always led in prayer around the dinner table. And it was just a whole cadence of up and down. And all the kids in the family prayed the same way. <laughs> it, was, it was pathetic, really. Kids have to learn how to talk to their father. What is proper to say? How you address the father. How you communicate. What you communicate. And that's part of your job. Elizabethan English. In Elizabethan English, with these and thous, and thys and thus. Well, I can debate that, Robin. <laughs> Let's go back and catch a couple more. Uh, on the left-hand side, to respect authority as a number one. As a number one. Oh, boy, we are... You must all read the same book. You must all... You're all coming up with number... The next one, to dissect a frog. How many of you would say that is number one? <laughs> one John. How many of you would say it's the number two? <laughs> How many of you would say that to dissect a frog is the number four? Uh, we don't. <laughs> we, we don't obviously don't have many biology teachers here because y'all got a couple of those around. <laughs> it's a three. Okay. All right. We can have fun with those. But we can't spend all day in it. You get the point. Let me now ask you to do number three. Take a minute or two minutes and go back through this list and put a D in front of those that are the most difficult to teach and take the longest to learn. Take a minute to do that. Okay. Let me have your attention again a minute. It's time for true confessions. And uh, Mr. Poundstone, I will start with you. How long did it take you to learn to obey your parents? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
can't remember. <laughs> a long time ago, I can't remember. How many of you could say that you learned that in the first five years of your life? To obey your parents and you learned it and learned it well. Oh, you... I, I'm sorry, but in my case, it took me at least 22 years. In practice. In practice. Yes, question in the back. When, okay, when I talk about learning to obey my parents, there are times as a child growing up, I was smart enough to do things that they wanted because otherwise I'd get a whack on the fingers or a swat on the seat. Uh, so I learned to avoid punishment. That's all I learned to do. It was really, you know, and in high school years, my father laid down some rules concerning the use of his car on Sunday night. And I learned games by which I could break his rules and not get caught. So I still hadn't learned to obey. It wasn't until I was away from home, I had gone off to college, that I finally realized my dad's rules were good and right. And I had to go back home and say, Dad, I'm so sorry that I just fought against you all these years. I finally want to obey. I want to obey. We get that way with the Lord. The Lord says, obey me. And we keep fighting against those rules. And we constantly have to be corrected. We constantly have to be reminded of, I still can't always sing with enthusiasm, I love your law, O Lord. I, I love to obey you. More and more, by the grace of God, I can say that. I, I can read Psalm 119 now with joy, with gladness. But it uh, wasn't too terribly long ago, I still didn't like that psalm. So, learning to obey your parents is a long, slow, difficult process. If you're a parent, I trust you put a D in front of that one. That's <laughs> difficult, right? Yes. Oh, yes. That's when you finally begin to learn. <laughs> uh, and you say, now it's my job to teach the next generation. Uh, and then you begin to learn to obey and honor your own parents. Uh, that one, I think, need, needs a D. Uh, to hit a softball, that's not terribly difficult. Ah, you can learn that in you know, uh, six weeks' time in a high school softball class. And you've got it pretty well mastered. Now, hitting a golf ball, <laughs> that's more difficult. It takes longer. <laughs> it's a much smaller ball. Even though it sits there perfectly still, it says, go ahead and hit me. Uh, how long, how difficult is it to learn to accept defeat? long and difficult I, I'm learning I shook Bob's hand yesterday <laughs> today is another exercise we will try again but that's difficult Jay some of us are making books we're putting you as a 
Oh, oh. Making book, I think, is against the good book. The making of books, there is no end. I, I trust that the people who listen to these tapes someday will understand what's going on behind the scenes. I trust. Let's try a couple more. Uh, to read critically as a slow, difficult process. Did you put a D there? Yeah. It is so easy to swallow everything that comes to us. I found it so frustrating during the years when I was a college teacher, both at Dort College, then at Trinity Christian College, most of the students who came to my classes, and these were sophomores, I never was entrusted with freshmen, <laughs> but most of those sophomore students who had grown up in Christian homes, who had been raised in Christian grade schools and Christian high schools, came to Trinity Christian College and they would swallow just about anything and everything you laid in front of them as long as it was in a book. And I said, that's terrible. <coughs> books are full of garbage. There are books that are just packed with falsehoods. You've got to learn to decipher, to discern what you read. You have to learn to read critically. And what I did in the years that I was at Trinity particularly, I chose as a basic textbook of the most popular secular book on the market for educational foundations. And then I also required that they read my education in the truth. They had to read both of them. And you think students got frustrated back at Dort with me. Students would get terribly frustrated and say, why in the world do you want us to read this book if you don't believe half of it? You know, we read a chapter and, and you tell us that his data is all wrong and you tell us that he has the wrong perspective and he has these presuppositions. Why must we read this stuff? Because I'm trying to teach you to read critically. And, and they would fight and resist that. And then a lot of them would say, I'm not going to read the book. I refuse. Okay, then you flunk my test. And then they come back and say, no, it's not fair. You asked all these questions out of the book. I say, yes. <laughs> I thought that was fair. But anyway, to read critically is difficult. It takes time. It's an ongoing process. Drop down to... To critique literature from God's perspective. How many of you put a D there? Yeah, good. That's difficult. Yes, question. Well, it's, I have to say a comment in here. I can recall in college at San Diego State taking a class in women's studies. This was 12 years Ooh, ago. Yeah. Some of you may have heard some of these stories, but it was a, it was a class, and, and, and I was a brand new Christian, I mean, brand new. And teacher got up in front of the class and said, you know, hi there, how do you do? I'm a radical socialist lesbian feminist, and the five worst things that have ever come into existence in this world are man, God, capitalism, America, and family. <laughs> and, and, and I was alone. I was alone. 
And, I mean, I would leave the class drained. I had Christian brothers outside the door that would literally kind of help me out. <laughs> under seats in this class. Well, in regards to reading critically, just to show you what the world will do, one of our assignments was to you know, read various writings of, of her ilk and, uh, and critique them. And I would critique them from God's perspective, or at least the best of my ability from the Bible, and, and uh, turn in my papers, turn in my assignments. And every single one, all semester long, was, was uh, graded as an F. And she was going to fail me in the class, you know, and I went into her finally and said, well, you know, do I, can I expect an F in this class because everything I've ever received from you has been a failing grade. They weren't written poorly. My wife can at least say that they were typed right. She typed them. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the point is that they'll, they, those things can happen mm. uh, in, that, in, that, uh, in that kind of an environment where you take these things to heart. Did you fail? Did you Actually, fail the course? No, she uh, she knew that. Uh, well, because I told her what would happen if she did. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and, and even though she was the head of the, that department, she knew I'd go over her head, and uh, I had all my you know my papers, and there was no reason for them to be a fail because all the instructions were to to, to respond. Actually, it was respond. You know, respond to these quotes of, and I won't even dare repeat them because they're so bad. But uh, anyway, no, she gave me a, a C in the class just to pass me. Get you out of her hair. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's all picked up on the tape because that's really what uh, you have to do. And you have to stand up in those situations. It would be so tempting, so easy to just capitulate and say, well, I'll do what is necessary to get a grade and get out of here but I commend you for standing up and taking the F's. That's great. I can tell you in my doctoral program, I had my major advisor who was a thoroughgoing apostle or disciple of John Dewey who had thrown overboard his Roman Catholic faith. But by the grace of God, that man defended my right to condemn democracy and to promote Christianity and to write the stuff that I wrote. And I always felt it was God's intervening grace. Uh, this man protected me all the way through the system and uh, said, I don't agree with you at all, but there's nothing wrong with your logic, there's nothing wrong with your evidence, there's nothing wrong with your analysis. Given everything you've said, yes, the kingdom of God and democracy are incompatible. You cannot be autonomous at the same time you believe in a sovereign God. You're right. I don't agree with you, but you get an A. And uh, I'm eternally grateful to God for letting me go through that without persecution. True liberal. Yeah, uh, he was a true liberal. <laughs> right? He actually practiced what he preached. So, But... What I'm trying to point out here is that some things are very difficult to teach. Some things take a long time. And it's the inclination of many teachers to not attempt them. To say, that is so difficult, that's almost impossible, I'm not going to even risk it. 
Because when you try to teach some of these things to kids, you risk their anger. You risk their wrath. And they may come back you know, and find some way to get back at you. That's always the risk of, of teaching according to God's word. But let's go on. Number four. One final time with this list. Go back through the list now and scratch out. Just draw a line through those objectives that are not or may not being taught by public school educators. Just go back through that list and scratch through a line a line through those that are not being taught today by the typical public school educator. Let me have your attention again. It's getting rowdy. Some of you haven't learned to be quiet in class yet. All right. I'll... Let's just see which ones of these you drew a line through. How many of you drew a line through that first one, to obey their parents? Are you serious that the public schools are not teaching kids to obey them? No, Oh, okay. The, the judgment I hear coming from you is that they are teaching the children to obey the teachers, but not to obey their parents. They, they challenge. Okay. Let's try the next one. To love their neighbor. How many of you put a draw a line through that? Only if he's gay. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. We could get into a lot of uh, digressions off this, but I just want to see if there's a pattern. How many of you uh, drew a line through to hit a softball? No. To drive a car? Mm, no, public school? Not anymore. Oh, you got... In our area, they still make that a priority item in the high schools. That's uh, To write in complete sentences, most of them would do it. Some of them probably... So the public schools in California are not teaching kids to write in complete sentences. Wow. I'm glad I don't have kids in California public schools. Oh, wow. Uh, we got to move on. How many of you drew a line through to appreciate the beauty of God's creation? Oh, they're, okay. You're almost unanimous. Let's try... Uh, the next one over here, to discern between truth and falsehood. How many of you drew a line through that? They don't know. They don't know the truth. They don't know the truth. Okay. Uh, to critique literature from God's perspective. How many of you drew? Oh, what? have you been brainwashed somewhere? You know, <laughs> How many of you drew a line through to love the Lord? Oh, to pray to God. How many of you detected a pattern here? 
Did you notice that you're drawing lines through ones? Yeah. And and D's. Ones and D's are the ones where I suspect you drew most of your lines. The, what you rated as twos and threes, you probably very seldom drew a line through. What I'm suggesting here is that there is a very significant difference between secular schools and Christian schools. And that is a difference in values. What is important? What ought to be learned? As Christians, we get a set of values from God's Word. And God tells us through that Word that these are important things. These are the most important things I want my children to learn. I want you to learn to obey me, first of all. I want you to learn to love me. I want you to learn to talk to me in prayer. I want you to learn to love your neighbor. I want you to learn to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. Those kinds of things. God says, those are the most important things that you must teach your children. And the public school says, none of those are legitimate. Keep them out of here. We don't even want to think about them. We don't want to hear about them. That's your religious stuff. You can have it on Sunday if you want. Wednesday night, that's okay too, but not during the week. Public schools come with a different bag of objectives. A lot of them we share. Sure. They say, we want our children to learn to read carefully. And we say, yes, of course. And we want to have them learn to subtract. Yes, of course. And we want them to learn to multiply. And we want them to learn to use computers. And we want them to learn how to hit a softball and to drive a car. All of those secondary, tertiary things, yes, we agree. But they make them priority items and we put them down here. And our priority items, they chop out. They will not tolerate. But now, yes, uh, Jeanette, or is Nancy. I wish all of that could be put on the tape because that's very perceptive and very precise. And that I can capture that idea, I think, in that statement of Jesus Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom, and all of these other things will be added unto you. If you teach your children to obey authority, to respect and honor their parents, to love God, they will learn 
to read and write and do arithmetic. If they are disobedient, if they refuse to listen to authority, the only thing they'll learn to do is to curse and swear and do drugs. And then you've got a worse problem. Yeah, they, they, right, the public schools grind away while they are just ignoring and even refusing to consider the primary things. But let me answer that last question, or at least address the last question. Is value, first of all, a noun or a verb? I have on the board over here, value is both a noun and a verb. But if you were writing the dictionary, which would you put first? Or is that one of these... <laughs> uh, somebody wants to put noun first because N comes before V. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's not a terribly good rationale. Forget it. <laughs> yes, uh, same fellow in the back. I go with the verb, and probably it's because of what I'm having to learn. Okay. The choice was that we should make value, first of all, a verb because we have to love God. We are commanded to love and that's something we have to do. And John Dewey would say, Amen, brother. I agree with you 100%. You might think this is a silly academic exercise, but I don't think it is. In educational philosophy, this becomes a major argument amongst philosophers. Is value, first of all, something that you and I do? Is it an activity? Is it a verb? Or is there some pre-existent set of values which you and I ought to imitate? Or do we create values? The non-Christian says, you and I create values. Nothing has value until you and I decide that it's valuable. And if you and I don't give it any value, it has no value. So, oh, wait a minute. Does God have a set of values? Yeah. Does God have a value system where he puts some things more important than other things? Is my soul more important than that little mole that scurried around during prayer meeting this morning? Yes. Is my eternal destiny more important to God than your pet cat? I hope so. God is saying all the things of this world are going to disappear. Don't put value on things where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. Don't put your value on cars, on computers, on condos, on boats. On put your value on things that are above. And I think God says, in my creation, I created man just a little bit lower than the angels. 
And I created man above animals and trees and plants. And I want you, I want you to take care of my creation. That was part of his assignment to Adam. But don't worship trees. Don't worship the environment. Worship me alone. Nobody else. One of the things that has often struck me is the number of times that God calls himself jealous. Read Exodus 34 verses, no, excuse me, Exodus 14 verse 34 or 34 verse 14. Must be 14 verse 34. My name is jealous. I don't want you worshiping anybody else except me. And in the Ten Commandments he comes and I am a jealous God. Keep your priorities straight, folks. Worship me and me alone. Value for us as Christians is something that is an eternal given. It's something that God gives to us through his word and says, here it is. Imitate it. The world says, no, folks, there is nothing eternal. There is nothing divine. Simply what you and I create. Values clarification. Values clarification does exactly that. Watch out for that. That is devilish stuff. It says whatever you choose to value is okay. Just make sure that you've done it our way. <laughs> yes, back there. Just for the record, it's Exodus thirty four fourteen. Thank you. I thought I had it right the first time, but Jay, thanks. That would be good. I wouldn't have any quarrel with that. That's good insight. Thank you very much. You made the same at the, the school, public schools are not teaching values. Public schools are teaching values. They're, not te they're teaching it as a verb. They're teaching it as a verb. Mm -hmm. And they are not consciously addressing values. They are not coming to a full recognition that there are values at stake here. We say there are family values that we want taught. And they're saying, oh, you sound like you belong to the Christian coalition again. We can do without you folks. Uh, but yes, they do unequivocally teach values. Let me also remind you that every one of us teaches values. Whether you consciously set out to do it or not, whether you are it's all aware, but you are teaching values to your children. And in your classrooms, if you're a classroom teacher, you teach values to your kids. Let me just give you one illustration of how this came to expression in our family as our kids were growing up. We were living out here in California. And our oldest son, a very good son who... We're very grateful for the way God has shaped and molded his life. But he had something that he just dreamed for. Someday, Lord willing, if I work hard enough and successful enough, I'm going to get a BMW. Where'd you ever get that crazy notion? One of his teachers at a BMW and he'd die he would die for the privilege of driving it 
One day I'm cruising down the street going between my two jobs, between two schools that I'm serving, and I'm cruising along in my little humble Volkswagen bug, and here I meet my oldest son driving this teacher's BMW. <laughs> During the school day, in the school hour. <laughs> Hold it! Something's going on here, folks. So I went over to the high school and I said, do you know what has happened? you know what I just saw? Yeah, the teacher gave him permission. Uh, okay, but my son for a long time had a very high value on cars. And they should be foreign cars and they should be something like a v BMW. Not like a bug. The teacher, I don't think, realized it. That teacher was always out there making sure that the car never got dusty. It always had to be washed and polished. You know, the teacher worshipped that car. And my son learned to worship that car. That was a value that was transcribed unconsciously, subconsciously.